views and opinions of findings and or devices discussed in this podcast are those of the host, subject matter experts, and or guests. Facts represented constitute our understanding at the time of the podcast, whereas updated factual information may be developed. They should not be construed as pronouncing an official Department of Defense's position, policy, decision, or endorsement. Hi, welcome to Clinical Updates in Brain Injury Science Today, or Cubist, a podcast for healthcare providers about current research on traumatic brain injury, also known as TBI. This program is produced by the TBI Center of Excellence, or TBI-COE. I'm your host today, Amanda Ganell. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Donald Marion, a neurosurgeon and TBI subject matter expert at TBI-COE. Don and I will discuss a study entitled Risk Factors for High Symptom Burden Three Months After Traumatic Brain Injury and Implications for Clinical Trial Design, a track TBI study by Nancy Temkin and colleagues, published in the Journal of Neurotrauma in June of 2022. Hi, Don. Thanks for bringing this article to our attention. What was this study about? Hi, Amanda. Sure. So Nancy Temkin and her colleagues have a very long history of TBI research. They did one of the original studies looking at whether or not you needed to prophylactically treat severe TBI with dilatin and found that you didn't. That was like 30 years ago. So she has a particular focus on TBI and recently on mild TBI or concussion. In this paper, her focus was on the optimal design of clinical trials for patients with mTBI. As you know, Amanda, a high proportion of MTBI subjects have spontaneous resolution of their symptoms within weeks after the injury, kind of no matter what you do. Uh, So if you started a novel treatment a few days after the injury and the patient improved, you really can't be sure it was the treatment and not just spontaneous recovery. Dr. Temkin has learned that efficient trial designs for novel treatments of post-concussion symptoms require subject inclusion and exclusion criteria that yield a sample of high-risk individuals, but are sufficiently common to make recruitment cost-effective. There currently is no guidance on such enrichment strategies for clinical trials that target post-TBI symptoms. So basically, her goal was to identify acute symptoms or characteristics that would predict which MTBI patients are most likely to have prolonged symptoms. She took advantage of the track TBI database of 2,697 MTBI subjects from 18 trauma centers enrolled from 2014 to 2018. All of the subjects in the database were evaluated at two weeks and again at three months, six months, and 12 months after their injury. That sounds interesting, Don. So how was this particular study done? So, Amanda, the analysis included 1,718 subjects in the track TBI database who were older than 17 years and who had a TBI less than 24 hours prior to enrollment, who also completed the Rivermead Post-Concussion Symptom Questionnaire, or RPQ, at three months after their injury. The RPQ is a measure of post-TBI symptoms and consists of 16 symptoms that the participant rates to indicate how problematic the symptom has been in the past seven days compared to before their injury. Each symptom is rated as not experienced at all or a score of zero, no more of a problem compared to before the injury or a score of one a mild problem, a score of two, a moderate problem, scoring three, or a severe problem for which they give it a score of four. So the RPQ total score ranges from zero to 64, with a higher number representing greater symptom burden. 
Potential enrichment factors were chosen from results of previous research identifying pre-injury, demographic, and acute or subacute risk factors related to post-TBI symptom reporting and TBI biomarkers that relate to TBI severity or outcomes. These included a psychiatric history including post-traumatic stress disorder, a history of previous TBI assessed using the Ohio State University TBI identification method, and extracranial trauma assessed using the maximum AIS score for chest, abdomen, extremity, and external areas. The RPQ, or River Mead Post-Concussion, total score at two weeks post-injury was used to classify someone who was improving if their score was less than or equal to 16, or someone with persistent post-concussion symptoms if the score was greater than 16. This division has been suggested as the optimal cutoff for separating people with persistent post-concussion symptoms from healthy adults in the general population, and was considered indicative of high symptom burden representing, for example, endorsement of at least half of the symptoms as a mild problem. Subacute post-traumatic stress symptoms were evaluated with the PTSD checklist for DSM-5 or the PCL-5 at two weeks post-injury. The PCL-5 is a self-report rating scale of 20 symptoms of PTSD, each rated from zero, meaning none at all, to four or extremely. Total scores range from zero to 80. PCL-5 scores were classified as relatively normal if less than 33 and indicative of PTSD if greater than or equal to 33. And finally, Amanda, blood-based biomarkers were obtained within 24 hours of injury and included GFAP, ubiquitin carboxyl terminal hydrolase or UCHL1, neuron-specific enolase, S100, calcium binding protein B or S100B, and highly sensitive C-reactive protein or HSCRP. Sounds like they had a lot of data to analyze. So what did they find, Don? Amanda, requiring clinical trial participants to have high symptom endorsement in RPQ, that is greater than 16, or PCL5, that is greater than or equal to 33. So basically, to reiterate, in that first few weeks after the injury, they found that RPQ and PCL were important predictors of long-term problems in these MTBI patients. Medical and psychiatric history and female gender also were highly predictive risk factors for significant post-TBI symptom burden at three months. However, neither of these variables, nor the TBI blood-based biomarkers, constituted useful enrichment elements when simulated as inclusion criteria for a clinical trial. For example, since women were less than one-third of the total number of MTBI patients, if you planned a clinical trial that only included women, the sample size reduction achieved would be modest and offset by a significant increase in the number of patients that would need to be screened to identify a sufficient sample. That's really interesting. I think a lot of people are looking for some sort of objective marker. So what about the biomarkers? Did they find anything there? Right. And, you know, unfortunately, Amanda, once again, it was kind of a complicated picture. They found uh, actually a counterintuitive relationship between some of the biomarkers, specifically GFAP, UCHL1, and S100B, and symptoms, with participants in the lowest third for biomarker levels endorsing more symptoms than those with the higher levels. So does that mean that maybe we should not be looking at biomarkers when considering inclusion criteria for clinical trials on TBI treatment? I don't know that I would say that, Amanda. I think it's just that there is a lot we have to learn about the time course of the blood levels of some of these proteins 
indicative of astrocytic or neuronal injury. For example, with a more severe injury that is likely to be associated with prolonged symptoms, perhaps the biomarker release may peak early within 24 to 48 hours of injury and then drop to subnormal or very low levels because of depletion. Yeah, that makes sense. A lot to do with timing. So what were the limitations of this study? In general, Amanda, I think this is a very strong study with very few limitations. In my opinion, the most significant is that track TBI did not include people whose TBI did not require a CT scan for clinical care. And this is really kind of an important issue that I think is often overlooked with the track TBI data. You mentioned before that we have discussed track TBI studies before, and, and yes, we have. It's a very popular database right now. But the thing that people need to keep in mind is that in order to be enrolled in track TBI, you have to have been taken to a trauma center, a level one trauma center, and you have to have been evaluated by a, a clinician who determined that you should get a CT scan. And that really, I think, separates out some of the more mild, you know, sports-related concussion and, and mild concussed patients from those with slightly more severe injuries. Also, as you know, Amanda, our guidance in the military is that a CT usually is not indicated for mild TBI. And if the service member does have a CT and the CT is positive, they are no longer considered to have a mild TBI, but instead are considered to have a moderate TBI. And you should know, Amanda, that 35% of the track TBI cohort had a positive CT scan. Additional limitations of the track TBI study are that they did not collect data on symptom endorsement prior to two weeks post-injury, and some trials may want to enroll patients earlier than that. Track TBI also did not request symptom information from a proxy when a participant was too impaired to take the RPQ. These are all important limitations to keep in mind. So what were the key takeaways of this study? Amanda, enrichment of a trial sample can make the trial more efficient by allowing the trial to have a smaller sample size to detect an effective treatment. In other words, eliminating most of those who have spontaneous improvement without treatment. This usually comes at a cost of having to screen more potential participants to find those who meet the restriction inclusion criterion. Screening patients for eligibility and taking an enrolled participant through the study both have costs. For example, including only females may appear to be free because the medical record contains that information. However, with a minority of MTBI patients being female, even with the reduced sample size, the study would need about 2.3 times the number of sites or 2.3 times the recruitment time to get enough cases, which can be costly. Screening to determine RPQ and PCL5 scores requires making contact and that the prospective participant be cognitively capable of reporting symptoms at two weeks. A study that uses expensive treatments or requires many in-person visits is more costly for each enrolled participant than one that provides an inexpensive treatment and evaluates outcomes by telephone. So depending on, among other things, the relative cost of screening and taking an enrolled participant through the trial, different enrichment strategies may be more practical and cost-effective. Yeah, that all makes sense, Don. Well, thank you. That's all the time we have for today. You can stay up to date on future episodes by subscribing to Cubist on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, where you can also find links to the articles we discuss and other relevant resources. 
Cubist is produced and edited by Vinny White and was hosted today by me, Amanda Gano. It is a product of the Traumatic Brain Injury Center of Excellence, a branch of the Research Portfolio Management Division under the Research and Engineering Directorate of the Defense Health Agency, led by Branch Chief Captain Scott Coda, Medical Corps, United States Navy. Thank you for listening to this episode.